0: Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer.
1: And I'm Will Orimus.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, March twenty-sixth.
1: On today's show, we'll discuss the latest news from Apple, which held a launch event this week, not for a new iPhone, but for a big new push into TV, gaming, and the news. There's even an Apple credit card now. We'll talk about what it all means. Then April will give us a quick update on the Democratic effort to restore net neutrality and the hurdles that lie ahead.
0: After that, we'll have a chat with Vina DuBal, a law professor at UC Hastings here in the Bay Area. We'll talk to her about how hundreds of Uber and Lyft drivers went on strike yesterday across California ahead of both companies planning major multi billion dollar IPOs. We'll also discuss a California lawsuit that impacts freelance and contract workers, forcing many of them to be reclassified as employees, and a bunch of other stuff on the topic. It's a really complex thing. I'm excited to have Vina with us.
1: And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best stuff we saw online this week. That's all coming up on If Then.
2: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com.
1: It's my little
0: escape.
1: Now Judy's the life of the party.
0: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
1: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs) Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Okay, so uh, Will, you sat through the entire Apple event yesterday, right?
1: I did. Or you like watched
0: it online, I assume. You didn't go to Cupertino.
1: I did not. There was a parade of announcements and a parade of celebrities at the end. We had Spielberg. We had uh, Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston and Steve Carell. We had Oprah. Oprah, <laughs> uh, Oprah shouting right? Apple at the end, which was which was a nice touch, really. Um yeah, it was yeah. it was long and there were no devices announced. And that's kind of what's interesting about it.
0: Oh, yeah. So that's super rare. Like these events usually are pretty hardware centric because Apple is pretty much primarily a hardware company, right?
1: Right. So in the past, Apple has made hardware and then it has made software to run on that hardware. Yeah. And a big secret to the company's success, obviously, has been that the software and the hardware work together seamlessly And it's this nice, clean, closed ecosystem where Apple controls everything. So it would have events to launch new devices like iPhones and iPads. It would have other events, often in the spring, to launch a new operating system, like a new version of, of iOS and macOS. But now we got a new type of event, and this event was centered on what Tim Cook calls services.
0: Right. No, and now, now the idea with moving into services is that everybody already has an iPhone and a, an a Apple computer. So how are they going to make money now? I mean, we, they, they've actually seen plateaus in sales when it comes to iPhones, right? And, and to be clear, these iPhones now cost, like, about $1,000, at least the nicest ones, so... You know, people are just not buying a new one every time there's a new one out anymore, perhaps. But but the sales have slowed. And, and so now the next place they're trying to, you know, take all our money is through these kinds of subscription-based services. And those, a number of those were unveiled uh, on Monday. Can you talk us through some of the, the new things that Apple's going to—or maybe tweaked things, but kind of these services that Apple's going to be providing?
1: Yeah, so they, they sort of spent the past 10 years trying to come up with what's the next iPhone, like what's the next device that's going to going to carry Apple for another decade, and they never quite found it. And it was it. the like,
0: AirPods, uh, right? That was it. <laughs> it was that everyone will keep losing them and so they'll keep buying them.
1: <laughs> I know, you hate the AirPods and you think they look like earrings.
0: No, they're good. People like them. I just don't want them for myself, but, uh, but, but it turns out that the obsolescence in those is not carrying over. <laughs> it's not enough to, to carry the torch of the iPhone, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the AirPods have a lot of potential but they're not on the same level as the iPhone in, in terms of expense.
0: People aren't losing them as quickly as I thought they would
1: <laughs> maybe not.
0: Um, so anyway, what's uh what what what's on the table now?
1: Yes, yeah, so, so having failed to come up with the new killer uh, hardware, they are shifting towards services and these services uh, that were announced, this week include a new version of apple news it's called apple news plus and the idea is you you pay apple 9.99 a month and you get access to like some 300 different magazines some of which you would normally have to have your a separate subscription for. Um, they'll look nice, you know, fancy fonts, maybe some interactive stuff uh, in the Apple News app. You will also get two major newspapers: access to content from the Wall Street Journal and the Los Angeles Times, a few other digital offerings, but. Basically, this is Apple bought a startup called Texture a few years ago that that did something similar. It would bundle a bunch of different magazine subscriptions together in one app. This is what that turned into. Mm. And Apple is hoping that you'll pay this extra fee to to read, you know, whatever your favorite magazines are within Apple News. And in fact, if you bought the subscription, it's actually... Cheaper than buying a subscription to just one or two of the many different publications that are contained within it. So as long as you don't mind reading magazines in Apple News, it could be a good deal for you. But that's just the start. There's also Apple TV Plus, um, and and that the details there are fuzzy. But basically, it seems like Apple wants to start competing to some degree with Netflix and Amazon Prime, and it's it's mm-hmm. rolling out its own TV shows, and that was hence the parade of of Hollywood uh figureheads at the end of the event. Um and then Apple Arcade is a subscription gaming service where you'll get access to a whole bunch of games for one monthly price. Again, we don't know the price on either the gaming or the TV service. And then one more thing Apple announced this week is Apple Card, which is a credit card. It works with Apple Pay and Apple Wallet. Um, MasterCard will actually do the payment processing. So it's not like, and, and Goldman Sachs is a partner as well. So Apple isn't becoming a bank, but it's sort of like a souped up version of a rewards card. You'll get cash back in Apple Wallet and Apple Pay for stuff that you buy.
0: Of course, I have questions and thoughts on all of these, but my uh, the mo- most of my questions are about the news because <laughs> that's the business I'm in. You know, I read your article. You had a great piece on this that I recommend people read that kind of walk through the potential pitfalls or how this might work uh, on Slate. It's called Apple is Reinventing Itself as the Ultimate Middleman. And you mentioned there that uh, Apple says that all of the subscriptions that it offers for $10 a month would be $8,000 individually or something. Is that what it was?
1: Yeah, this is if you subscribe to 300 magazines and you're paying 8,000 a month, you should definitely take this deal. You'll save, save 7,990 dollars a month. You,
0: I love that figure because I want to meet somebody who's like, oh, thank goodness.
1: <laughs> there was a little bit of infomercial vibe when they were like, for the low, low monthly price of 9.99, you will I get know. all of these things.
0: I know, and that's not it. I totally, I thought <laughs> I got that vibe too, but. um, but, but, you know, that Apple is getting more into the news game is, is something that you've actually thought and written quite a bit about. I mean, Apple News is already a behemoth in its own right, but it hasn't necessarily treated publishers or really monetized in a way for, or been profitable for publishers or kind of helped us sustain our business, even though it's brought a lot of traffic. And so obviously I'm a little skeptical about this new deal can you kind of let me know if this you think this will work or what some pitfalls might be or concerns or 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 maybe this is potentially great i don't know
1: yeah i I mean i think apple was hoping that this would be something bigger apple news is a pretty successful product in terms of people using it people seem to like it a lot of people are getting their news on there The the readership is growing quickly but you're right they've they have had a lot of trouble um selling ads on there and and the publishers who put their stories on there are not seeing much money from it. And when Apple went out to recruit publishers for this Apple News Plus product, it apparently, according to some good reporting from the Wall Street Journal and others, it apparently Mm -hmm. um, ran into a lot of skepticism. And and so you'll notice that the New York Times is not part of Apple News+. Plus. The Washington Post is not part of Apple News+. Plus. Apple was reportedly asking for a 50% cut of the revenues from all subscriptions. The Times and the Washington Post have thriving subscription businesses, so they just said no. And, And, you know, maybe they'll get on board later. Maybe Apple will lower its asking price. But it seems to be treating news publishers a lot like it treated uh the record labels when it when it pushed out itunes or the way it treated book publishers Mm -hmm. when it when it came out with books um it's it's just squeezing them it's using all the leverage it has and trying to get the best deal because it used to be that apple just made nice software as a as a sort of lost leader for the phones for the hardware and they would make all the money on the hardware but now that they have to grow the services business they have to sort of grab all the money they can. And so not just in news, but in TV and gaming and payments, they're looking for every possible way to take a cut of this new, I'm calling it like the subscription economy. There's this sort of like new um, trend of of people finally paying for content online. And Apple, it seems like, wants to be the broker of that economy in s- in a way that I think is analogous to how Amazon has become the broker of the online retail right. economy and e-commerce. E- e-
0: you know, and what gives me pause here is that, you know, you brought up Apple music and and iTunes and really the the, the kind of deal that they forced on people was that, OK, if you want access to people that have iPhones, then you have to take our bad bargain. You know, <laughs> like they kind of use their gatekeeping power in many ways or not not necessarily that severe, but they they basically are able to, to kind of wave this this very, very big bargaining chip and throw it down and say, you know, will we have access to everyone with iPhones? Um, and that doesn't seem to be working out, you know, as well or as clearly in in this case, but Apple has a lot of gatekeeping power. And so as they move into the services business, it's going to be really interesting to see um, how they leverage uh, their access to their massive, you could think of it as a user base, I would have, you know, I would prefer to think of people who have iPhones as just owners. Um, but you know, they're also, uh, I guess, a user base.
1: Right, so this is Apple sees this as an opportunity to get you to not only pay a thousand dollars every two years for a new iPhone, but <laughs> to also pay, um, you know, ten, twenty, thirty dollars a month in subscriptions for, for the various content that you use on that phone. And they are well positioned to do it. I mean, if anybody can do it, it's this company that has a really intimate relationship with, with their customers. Um, they know that Apple customers like convenience and ease of use. They know how to design customer uh, software that their customers like. And so they're betting mm-hmm. that uh, a lot of iPhone users will say, hey, look, you know, I could go out and look for the best bundle of different third-party games that I could buy, or I could just take what Apple's putting right here in front of me, and they they say they've picked out some good ones. Um, you know, some games or some TV shows. So let's just give that a try. And they've had a lot of success with Apple Music. Even though Spotify was already an established player and Apple Music was basically a ripoff of Spotify, it has worked because, you know, a lot of Apple users will just take whatever Apple offers. They have uh, disposable income. And so I think that's what Apple's betting on here. The one other thing I want to add, though, is that Apple has one other real virtue going for it besides Mm. the sort of convenience and seamlessness for people who have iPhones It has really been marketing itself as the privacy focused tech company. And it's yeah. it's pushing that pretty hard with these products. It's saying that with Apple News Plus, it will not track what you read. It will not serve you targeted advertisements based on your behavior. It's not building a profile of you. Um, Apple also says that with the credit card, it won't track what you buy and where. A lot of people don't realize it, but your credit card company is almost certainly tracking all your purchases and using it to help inform this, this behavioral profile of you. Apple says it won't do those things. And that that I think, you know, there is there is debate out there about how much people really care about privacy. But I think that that will help uh, nudge some people toward choosing Apple as their way into these different types of, of content and services.
0: And I mean, I want to wrap this conversation, but just in the case of the credit card, it's interesting to me that they say they're not going to track that because I don't even know how that's possible. Or it's like, are there? They're just not going to be a record of what I purchase because, I mean, the whole thing is like when you're using your credit card, there's a record of what you purchase. So I think that's an interesting claim. Um, I need to read more about the kind of the mechanics of that to really wrap my head around some of the privacy claims that I'm broadly understanding. Um, go with the Apple card, uh, but I, I want to move on to talk briefly about net neutrality if we have a couple minutes. Um,
1: Yeah, April, you have continued to doggedly follow the the battle to restore net neutrality. What's the latest on that front?
0: Yeah, so today uh, there was a markup, which is kind of like a vote type of situation, in the House Subcommittee on Communications and Technology on a bill that would restore the open Internet rules, the net neutrality rules that were repealed under uh, Chairman Ajit Pai at the FCC in 2018. Uh, This bill would kind of uh, once again uh, make it illegal for Internet providers like Comcast and Verizon and AT&T to block access to websites or throttle websites or to charge websites a fee to reach users at faster speeds. And so, you know, making it out of this subcommittee is, is kind of a big deal because um, the way it was made out, it turns out that uh, there were not um, amendments that were tagged on with it. There was a huge fear that, you know, Republican lawmakers particularly, but there's a, that someone or would be successful in um, tacking on An amendment that would water it down. And, you know, the fear with passing any sort of legislation when a regulatory agency usually takes care of something is that the legislation could be worse or could codify kind of like loopholes or a watered down version of, uh, you know, net neutrality rules that have concessions into law. Um, and, and then it, you know, we would kind of be worse off, whereas with a regulatory agency, there's more flexibility. or It's a bit easier to, to promulgate policy changes than it is through Congress. But you know the, the Save the Internet Act uh, went through uh, with the subcommittee, and that's a good sign. I mean, it's going to be a bit harder to get something through the Senate where there is a Republican majority. But uh, you know, tens of thousands of people tuned into this like live stream committee markup hearing today. It's this kind of obscure, you know, moment in civics that people don't typically tune into, and so you know, people are still charged up on this, and rightfully so. Really concerned about uh, how much power the the people that they pay every month for internet will have to control. The websites that they access. So uh, so this is an issue that's moving along. And, and, you know, it's we're waiting for a court decision now, but it's also now moving through Congress. So I just wanted to give an update on that um, because it, it is, you know, another milestone in this this ongoing saga.
1: All right. I'll continue to read your reporting on that.
0: When we come back, we will have an interview with Vina DuBal. She's a professor of law at UC Hastings, and she's going to talk to us about the gig economy and how workers fare now and the upcoming IPOs with Uber and Lyft and the kind of battle as to whether or not uh, people who work for these companies as, as drivers or delivery people and what have you should be classified as employees. Our guest today is Vienna Dubal, Associate professor of Law at UC. Hastings, who specializes in labor as it pertains to the ever-growing gig-centric workforce. Vienna, thanks so much for joining us Thank you for having me. So let's start with the news a bit. Hundreds of drivers staged strikes or a strike uh, across California yesterday. These are drivers for Uber and Lyft. What were they striking over exactly? I know there are a lot of reasons for there to be grievances, but there were a few specific things this time,
2: right? So the drivers in Los Angeles were that what sort of precipitated the strike was specifically a twenty-five cent cut in their um, in their pay. Um, But the drivers that were uh, protesting in San Francisco were protesting both pay and a number of other things, including um, policies around their deactivation and termination, um, the fact that Lyft is about to, and Uber for that matter, are on the verge of an IPO, and they feel that the model isn't profitable, that it's certainly not profitable for them, and that there are just certain things that need to change before the companies take those huge steps. I think that, the, you know, I spoke with a number of drivers who are also protesting m- m- things more broadly um, in addition to pay and um, and the precarity of their, you know, living in fear of constant termination. I talked to drivers who were angry that their data was being um, constantly recorded by Uber, that they had no access mm. to that data, that in general folks feel like they are... Um, that they are working for this behemoth company that they, and they have no control over anything. And so I think that's what instigated a lot of the anger.
0: And that's, uh, it's, it's interesting you say they have no control over anything because the whole kind of situation of their workforce is premised that, on that they have control, that they're contract workers, right? And so maybe you can kind of explain to us, first of all, how many contract workers there are or gig workers and, and what exactly we mean when we say a gig worker or an independent contractor that works for these kinds of app-based platforms.
2: So, whether or not someone is an independent contractor is actually a legal inquiry. Um, but what's happened with the Uber and Lyft and Handy and DoorDash and the whole, what we now term, um, that, you know, the technologically enabled gig economy is that the companies themselves have created a political and cultural notion of what it means to be a contractor that actually doesn't line up with, um, legal definitions of contractor. And in the companies making these are, Um, These are people who are, quote unquote, their own boss, who have the flexibility to work when they want to, if they want to, um, and are therefore uh, somehow free. Um, What an independent contractor is under the law is really something very different it's someone who has control over the day-to-day business that they run Um, they should have control over things like how much they charge Um, they should have control over themselves in the workplace Um, and in stark contrast in what we call the gig economy workers are controlled by their app they're controlled by text messages they're controlled by algorithms Um, and they, they don't get any input into how much they charge, into how much money they make. They have no say in business decisions. Um, they're sort of like actually quite opposite of a contractor. I almost feel like they're a um, a second-class employee. You know, they're, w- they're working for a boss, um, but unlike in a traditional workplace where you actually can see the b- boss and, and to some extent negotiate with the boss on an everyday level, these workers have no control over anything. They have no way to contact anyone. They have no way to, um, uh, to you know, offer input into their own work um, or into much less into the company's practices. Um, in terms of how many independent contractors there are, it's not as significant as we once thought it would be. The Bureau of Labor Statistics um, suggests that it's a, it's you know that the vast majority of um, workers in the economy are traditional employees. Um, I think that part of why these contractors, the gig workers, get so much, um, so much attention both in the, the labor world and in, um, in the media and academia is because they represent what could be. right. They represent the, um, the growth of the informal economy in the United States. Um, they represent what labor standards could very easily fall to um, for the rest of us who are normal employees.
0: Right. And not just what what it could be, but often uh, people have to take these jobs as a side job because their current employment situation isn't good enough. So so public education, when it comes to teachers, for example, I have a lot of, not a lot, but a, two or three friends who are teachers who drive uh, for Uber or Lyft here and there because their current employment situation is just not sustainable in the housing markets that they are working in. It's
2: so, so true, especially in um, in urban areas like San Francisco and Los Angeles where people are, um, are not making enough money off of their full-time job um, to survive in really expensive areas, this work is, um, it solves for other pathologies, right? Like when people are, are not able to meet rent and put food on the table, they have to pick up this kind of work. Um, so you're, it's a really, um, really important point.
1: Yeah, a term you've used that I that I find interesting is um, precarity and and the precariat, which is a portmanteau of precarious and proletariat. It's like an emerging class of people <laughs> who who uh, work but don't have the kind of security that that one would hope for uh, from that work. Um, but I wanted to ask a little bit about the history. I mean, th- the gig economy, a- as we talk about it in those terms, is relatively new and has to do with the use of apps to provide services on demand. But what's the relationship between that and earlier forms of temporary work? I mean, in the 50s and 60s, we, there were there was Kelly Girl, right? And there's was, there was manpower, temp staffing. Are the, are the people participating in today's gig economy, in what ways might they be better off or, or worse off than people who have been temporary workers under previous sort of labor regimes?
2: Yeah, so I, there is a distinction to be drawn between temporary workers and contractors. Temp workers um, oftentimes have traditional employment protections via their staffing agencies, um, but the con- contractor phenomenon does date back to. Um, Back to the late 50s, um, 60s, and 70s, when you had a small percentage of people in certain industries, like um, the janitorial industry, the taxi industry, and the construction industry, who were um, who were classified as contractors by their employers, um, and who you know worked very precariously. The difference between them and what we see now in the tech-enabled gig economy, people working on these labor platforms, I think um, two things. One, just numerically, what the labor platforms do is they um, enable more and more and more and more people to work in this type of environment. So people who are Especially people who are carved out of wage labor, who um, who don't have access to other types of types of full-time work because of language barriers, because of you know emotional physical disabilities, um, because of racism, for all these you know all these myriad of reasons, they um, the the barriers are much lower for them to log onto an app and work. Um, the second thing that's different that makes it, I think, you know, in addition to the growth factor, that makes it actually uh, quite um, uh, qualitatively different is again the use of these algorithms for management Um, so unlike with a taxi driver who was you know maybe an independent contractor in the late 1970s who would go into the garage and um, and you know be able to talk to his um, fellow workers and interact with a manager and you know have some kind of control over aspects of his work these people workers in the gig economy literally are just managed um, through algorithms and so it is I think an extraordinarily frustrating experience to get a text message that says you're driving too fast or to get a an alert that says that if you um, just drive a little longer and a little bit more, then maybe you um, can make more money. Um, or if you don't pick up, um, if, you, if you know, if your rating drops too low, then you're going to be terminated. And to not be able to have like a human face to then interact with, to negotiate, um, to protest, to say, you know, this is um, this is wrong. This this information is incorrect. Um, you know, a lot of times drivers say that they're underpaid and the process to get, you can't just walk into someone's office and say, hey, I think that you left off $100 from my pay stub. Um, you have to go through this annoying Um, process of texting and emailing into the ether and um, Mm -hmm. and the fact that there that the that the interface is what's the technological interface is is what's responding to you is um, I think a huge source of anomie and frustration and isolation
0: I you know I really like the term or not like but I find it useful the idea of being managed by an algorithm because it's just so Frustrating the idea of that and really they they do kind of control people's hours in so many ways I, I interviewed a couple of drivers who were striking both in Los Angeles and San Francisco yesterday and uh, they said that there are all of these programs to incentivize them to stay in the car for hours and hours longer to kind of control their hours in, in these in these kind of small ways that they get these text messages and messages that, that tell them to keep going and keep going and keep working. Um, one thing I want to bring up, though, is that being managed by an algorithm um, has been uh, r- tremendously profitable for these companies and that they have very little overhead and, uh, you know, few kind of managerial responsibilities or responsibilities that a traditional um, manager and, and kind of employer would have uh, the Uber IPO is uh, being pitched to bankers at 120 billion dollars, and the Lyft is, uh, public offering is, is being pitched at 23 billion dollars. So this is just you know tremendous amounts of money here, and they're also pouring money um, into campaigns to to kind of prevent uh, their worker status or the status of the people that work for them from being compromised uh, out of their favor or out of the favor of these companies. And and, and in particular, uh, we've seen that play out in really interesting ways in California with the Dynamex case. Uh, and that's actually a court case that's now being moved to be codified into to legislation. Um I'm going to stop talking. Maybe you can explain what Dynamex is better than me, but it regards how uh, gig workers are classified and whether or not they actually should be classified as employees rather than as independent contractors.
2: Right. Um, so in California, um, in, in mid-2018, the California Supreme Court um, decided a case, Dynamics v. Um, Superior Court of Los Angeles, that interestingly was about the status of an um, on-demand transportation delivery company called Dynamics and how they were misclassifying their drivers. And what the California Supreme Court did was use this decision to change the definition of what an employee is in California for the purposes of wage laws, not for unemployment uh, insurance, not for workers' compensation, but just for wage laws. And the Supreme Court said, I think, in a really breathtakingly beautiful opinion, that there are people right now who are working in California um, who have a boss. They're working for big companies, but they're mislabeled contractors. It's hard for them to get their day in court to be officially recognized as employees and so we're going to make it easier for the people instead of making it um, making it easy for the company to misclassify them, we're going to presume that everyone is an employee for wage purposes and, um, and it actually the company has to prove that no, 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 our workers are actually independent contractors and the key aspect of the test is that if the worker does what the hiring entity does, then they are employee. So, the example the court gave was you know, if a plumber is hired by a department store that sells clothes, the plumber is not doing what the department store does. The plumber is fixing the plumbing, the department store sells clothes. Um, And I think the analogy can be extended to say, well, an Uber driver is driving for Uber, they're doing, you know, they're essentially doing chauffeur work, they're doing taxi work, and Uber is a transportation company under California CPUC rules. And so, um, understandably, these companies. Are very, very worried and upset because what this decision, which has yet to be enforced in the state, although it is the current state of the law, this decision means that their workers are employees that are owed. Uh, minimum wage protections and overtime protections Um, and the fact that this is like such a huge deal for them and that they're fighting it so vociferously in the state legislature to me um, signals that they are not paying their workers minimum wage Um, which is, you know, we've known anecdotally for a really long time, um, but the amount of energy and money and time that they're putting in fighting this decision um, is, I think, evidence of the fact that many, many people are not getting minimum wage, um, that they would be much better under a traditional employment regime where they have access to minimum wage, where they have access to overtime benefits.
0: Right, and, you know, Lyft did say in its uh, filings for its public offering, uh, it told prospective investors that classify drivers as employees would, quote, uh, require us to significantly alter our existing business model and uh, would cause what they called monetary exposure, which I think they meant uh, tremendous losses for the company. <laughs> so they really kind of rely on their drivers not being employees and saving the money that they save from that. But then the the cost of them not being employees kind of gets passed on to the public or to taxpayers in many ways, right? Because uh, then, you know, they have to go to the emergency room where they, they uh, are on food stamps um, or, or are in need of more public support.
2: That's right. And that's what the California um, Department of Labor has said for a really long time. They've said, look, if companies aren't paying their workers properly, the people that suffer are the people of California who have to. Pay the taxes um, to support um, to support folks who are working really hard but aren't making enough to survive, um, and it hurts law-abiding businesses who have to compete with these companies who are operating at an unfair and illegal advantage um, because they are underpaying their
1: workers. So these gig economy companies are trying to make the case that requiring them to treat workers as employees would would destroy their company, destroy their business. Uh, destroyed jobs. Can you envision a world in which that ruling happened, and and what we might see spring up in their wake if in if in fact it did, kind of destroy their business models to some extent?
2: You know, I wouldn't be surprised if they that they, if whether this was if this were true. I studied the taxi industry for a really long time, um, and what I saw was that the taxi industry has never been um, profitable, absent regulations. Um, absent you know, a regulatory framework in place. So it might be that, in fact, especially because they're just hemorrhaging money left and right on all kinds of, of different things that are, that are not traditional to the taxi industry, like trying to invest in self-driving cars, trying to figure out how to use the data analytics um, that their drivers are constantly collecting, etc. I wouldn't be surprised if forced to actually pay their workers properly, whether these companies would go under. Um, and if that were the case, what I could envision is a really awesome, um, lots of different things that might be really good for workers and really good for consumers. You know, I think that consumers are really into the, the idea of having an app that can get them a ride faster than, say, trying to hail a cab or trying to call a dispatch service. And I can also imagine a regulatory regime where you have an app, but you also have a a cap on the number of vehicles, you have minimum fares, um, so that this becomes, you know, possibly could become middle class work again with all of the technological flair of the 21st century. Um, And there's, you know, based on everything that we've known, we've come to know, and all of the solidarity that's been built uh, between and among workers as a result of this ridiculously exploitative regime. Um, I think there's also potential for taxi cooperatives or for um, driver cooperatives to emerge in that vacuum, um, which would be, I think, uh, really beautiful and exciting. So, yes, I can see good things emerging if, in fact, um, this space were to be vacated um, by these these exploitative companies.
0: Wow, driver cooperatives. I haven't heard that concept in a while, but that's a great note to end on. Vina Dubal, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me okay our interview with Vina is over but I just wanted to add uh, a quick recommendation for people who are really interested in this topic there's a article today in the New York Times entitled the backdoor move uber and others are using to shape labor rules it's by Noam Schreiber who I think listens to our show or at least I know has at some point point. Uh, and it's a it's a great unpacking of the kind of legislative you know dance that all of these kind of tech-based gig companies are doing across the country to ensure that uh, laws are passed passed that protect the status of workers as contractors and uh, does not force them to be classified as employees. This is happening in Texas. There's already bills that have been passed in Tennessee, uh, in Indiana, I believe in Utah and other places. Uh, and of course, it's playing out completely differently here in California. I really recommend people read that to get up to speed on this uh, very, very hot topic, especially as these companies are racing towards multi-billion dollar IPOs. One final quick break, and then we'll have Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we've seen on the web this week.
1: Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: Okay, well, let's start with you. What story do you want to share for your tab this
1: week? All right, I have a bit of potential good news Oh. Uh, it's not really news. It's analysis, but <laughs> but it's it's not dark and disturbing and grim and hopeless. So that so uh, that's a little bit of a switch. But this is <laughs> a story from Wired. Um, it's by Clive Thompson, and the headline is "We Might Be Reaching Peak Indifference on Climate Change." Oh, no. And he borrows the phrase "peak indifference" from Cory Doctorow, who you might know from from Boing Boing. Um, yes. And Thompson cites data showing that. The number of Republicans who believe in climate change is up to 64 percent as of last December, according to a poll from Monmouth University. I would probably want to see a little more data, but um, Thompson takes this as a very encouraging sign. Um, you know, amid all the 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 terrifying things that are happening uh, around the country and around the world, natural disasters, um, wildfires, hurricanes, uh, heat and cold. Um, it looks like the message is finally getting through to folks that we've got to do something about this. Um, And that's despite uh, having a president and and a Republican leadership that still tries to make the case that climate change isn't a real thing. Um, But his story suggests that we may be moving toward an era where there is finally bipartisan consensus that climate change is real and we could potentially get on to the business of figuring out together what to do about it rather than having this eternal argument about whether the science is real or, or some kind of liberal conspiracy.
0: Hmm. Yeah, no, it seems like uh, we can't really start to solve things until we can just agree on a baseline. There's something that needs to be solved. I, I, I should read that. Thank you so much for that recommendation.
1: Yeah. So, April, what's your tab this week?
0: So, I have a piece from Slate because sometimes we are the band that wears their own t shirt. Uh, this is a fantastic cover story by our frequent contributor, Justin Peters. It is entitled Joe Rogan's Galaxy Brain, and it's about Joe Rogan's Galaxy Brain. Uh, Joe Rogan has, I think, the most popular or one of the most popular podcasts in the country. I mean, just wildly popular, tons and tons of people listen. To him, I think it's weekly, and these are like super long podcasts, and they are incredibly alt righty, <laughs> right? But still, like folks like Elon Musk and uh, Jack Dorsey, I think has been on there. Uh, Alex Jones is a regular guest, and it gets into how these podcasts work and and how Joe Joe Rogan operates and why he's perhaps so popular, how he doesn't challenge his guests, and how he's created this this very big platform for this kind of like unquestioning type of it's not journalism, it's it's just this kind of interview show that that pretends to be journalism, where people feel who are in power or who have wild ideas, who are really comfortable just kind of saying whatever they want and are not going to be challenged, Um, and has really helped to popularize and present folks like Alex Jones, who are, you know, really parroting these conspiracy theories that do have very dangerous consequences, you know, in the physical world. I don't want to say real world because the internet is real. But, uh, but, you know, about, say, whether Parkland survivors uh, have a hoax or uh, whether— you know, parents of the uh, victims of the Sandy Hook massacre, you know, whether that was a hoax and and other dangerous conspiracy theories that have really led to harm in the real world. Uh, But yeah, Joe Rogan has this incredibly popular podcast. The the piece is uh, very, very smart. A lot of satisfying sentences and writing and just kind of gets a peek into this wildly popular media space that uh, maybe a lot of people who listen to our podcast don't listen to as much. uh, But is really important to understand in terms of really kind of grokking, uh, how people who are on the right or near the right, uh, really, you know, like to consume their media or at least what they're consuming.
1: Yeah, this, it was a really good piece. I agree. And I thought it did a good job of explaining the appeal of Joe Rogan's show while also sort of dismantling it and and explaining why, um, it's not the sort of bastion of, of free thought and critical inquiry that it, that it sets itself out to be. Um, but it, you know, it seems like Rogan is sort of speaking to this imagined Nixonian silent majority of people who think that the, the media is too liberal and that people are too quick to take offense. And uh, and I, I thought Peters did a really nice job of, of capturing why that resonates with people, as well as uh, the ways in which it's actually often very lazy thinking that, it, that it's presented as either free thinking or as common sense.
0: Yeah, unchallenging, and the the my one criticism I just want to add is is that it did not get into, and maybe there's just you know not enough space, and nobody wants to read another thing words. So this isn't criticism as much as something that I would add to the piece or to an argument around this subject uh, is is what led to folks like Joe Rogan gaining popularity and kind of like created a palette or, or kind of a, a taste for this type of uh, media, this type of interview. And a lot of that has to do with the deconsolidation that happened, you know, throughout the 80s, really in the mid 90s, that led to a tremendous amount of uh, kind of conservative talk radio to blanket the airwaves. Uh, in the early aughts that I think really paved the way or kind of created an appetite for this type of talk show. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, I always think, a kind of a policy and an economic uh, story here as well that's worth digging into. But a fantastic piece. I'm so happy I read it. I recommend you do too. And I think that does it for our show this week, right? Um, that was a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was fun. And and I should say, this is usually the part where we say that you can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. We've been really bad at updating that, as you've probably noticed if you've actually ever taken our advice. Uh, I don't <laughs> remember the last time we gave you an update about what's coming up next, so we're going to just go ahead and, and make that account defunct. And so if you want updates about what's coming up next, do not follow us at FnPod. You can, you can follow uh, April and me individually.
0: And you can also follow Slate Podcast, which is a Twitter account for all of the fantastic shows that Slate hosts. Uh, and a lot of uh, the various Slate podcasts are also kind of sunsetting their personal Twitter accounts or their individual Twitter accounts and using this one collective awesome Twitter account, uh, Slate Podcast. Please follow it there. Uh, you can reach uh, Will on Twitter, as he said individually, at Will or Emis. I'm at April Laser. Thanks again to our guest, Vina DuBall. I highly recommend you follow her on Twitter. She's at Vina DuBall, especially if you want to track and keep up to date with uh, the politics and the court cases that are raging through the gig uh, worker debate.
1: And thanks to everybody who's left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. That is emphatically not defunct. We would still love it if you would go do that if you haven't done that (laughs) already. Please.
0: Uh, If then, it's a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week, you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash futurenews.
1: Our producer is Cameron Drews. Thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios in Newark, Delaware, and Topher Ruth at UC Berkeley for helping us engineer this episode.